There are readers and there are listeners, and this is for the listeners. Welcome to the July 5th edition of the Red Blue Audiocast. We'll be diving into some of the themes we discussed this week. First up is episode four of the Automotive Analyst Series podcast. This one, we had a chance to sit down in London with Arndt Ellinghorst, who is formerly the head of global automotive research at Evercore ISI. Arndt no longer has to deal with a compliance department. He's actually not in the research world today, so he was able to say whatever he wanted. Yielded a pretty interesting conversation, especially about the differences between American companies, European companies, and Japanese companies. And a little bit of fun stuff at the end. He's a bit of a car racer, and we talked a bit about his racing of vintage Porsches. You can find the podcast episode online where you can read the rest of this newsletter at news.red.blue. Okay, so on to the news. Before we dive into the news, Olaf, you had a conversation with River Davis and Yuki Furukawa of Bloomberg last week about the big deal that came up between Sony and Honda and how they've actually formed an interesting JV to take on the automotive industry. So I think what's interesting about the piece is it actually gets into some of the inner workings between the relationships between the CEO of Honda and of Sony and the background relationship where both over time have come to realize the synergies in working together. So I thought that was like a really interesting aspect of the piece. My contribution is more about the structural shifts that are happening and the need for companies to partner and collaborate. As you're seeing Apple moving more into the cabin experience, cabin experience becoming a core front for competition in the automotive industry really defined by Tesla. The main thrust is that there's increasing competition within the automotive industry, and there's a need for partnerships. So it's interesting to see Sony and Honda partnering up. It's not super clear how well it's going to work out in the long run. Sony didn't fare so well when the iPhone came along, and maybe competing with Tesla is going to be hard for them. But it's an interesting shift that's happening. So, Olaf, you take on the NIMBYs in this edition of the newsletter. You start out with a pretty interesting video. The video is just weird. If you watch it, it's Eric Adams, mayor of New York City, waving a checkered flag. I saw this on Twitter originally. I'm like, what the hell's going on? Why is he waving a checkered flag to have a bulldozer crush like a hundred dirt bikes and ATVs and stuff like that? It was just such a weird video. Like you don't see that for other things. So like raised my curiosity as to what the hell was going on here. I think in cities like New York, I've seen this in Boston, I've seen this in Miami, in San Francisco, you've got a lot of folks that drive around with extremely loud dirt bikes in dangerous formations, like sometimes on the wrong side of the road. So I get the frustration and I get why he's taking a victory lap. But I think the controversy was just how he was throwing in motorbikes that probably weren't even illegal to start with. It was just a spectacle. This was a policy actually created by de Blasio before his time. What's interesting is like why this is popular. There's lots of, you, you mentioned the noise of motorbikes. I think helicopters, motorbikes, they can be loud, but so can cars. And you don't see the same kind of reaction to cars. And I think a key point that I'm arguing in the section is there's a kind of middle class of car owners who all own cars. And everything that's done by car owners is normalized and fine. But what people on the edges do is not necessarily okay and fine. And I think this is true for politics in general. You don't win an election by winning the top 25% or the bottom 25% of the electorate. You win it by winning the middle 51% of the electorate. And so politics always has a kind of reversion to the mean. And the mean is car ownership. So I think this is a natural consequence of the fact that car ownership is normalized. People think things around cars are fine, even though I think we've made this point in other scenarios that cars are more dangerous, heavier, more polluting, cause lots of problems, but because they're the norm, they're invisible. 
and then things around the edges like motorbikes that make noise may be somewhat dangerous or scooters as we mentioned later as an example of Canada in Canada might create some danger but it's actually secondary towards relative to cars but the perception is that it's problematic it's new it's shifting the status quo and the reason I compare this to nimbyism is because I think that's the nature of nimbyism is to resist any shifts in the status quo by parties that have some kind of incumbent power and it's net negative even though for the individuals that are doing it it makes sense to them we jump right into nimbyism but just to take a step back for people that might not be familiar with the acronym nimby stands for not in my backyard and it is describing anyone who says hey i don't want that to be built here i don't want that new road to go through here i want things the way they are i don't want my city to change and it's a pretty overwhelming force especially in american cities that prevents changes in zoning and building and transportation thoroughfares coming up. But you point out Vancouver in particular, we just got back from there, you point out Vancouver in particular as an interesting example of where there are some big changes coming. I don't know if there are that many changes coming to Vancouver. Most of Canada doesn't even allow scooters, which is shocking. I think people have the assumption that Canada is maybe open and friendly towards alternative modes of transit. Canadian cities have much better transit than US cities, but scooters, which often you know supplemental to a transit network can be quite synergistic with transit but Canada has mostly blocked them and in Vancouver with this pilots happening slow to have happened it's taken half a decade there's a lot of resistance from older people people who feel like these things aren't safe and I think it's the same kind of double standards that are being applied where scooters and people are squeezed into less space on the sidewalks or sometimes in bike lanes their reaction is to resist the scooters even though the reason they've been squeezed into that small amount of space is because of the presence of cars which take up the vast majority of space and actually show this diagram that that's from my book about how vancouver street space is assigned your cities are even more extreme in this regard around 80 percent of urban space is dedicated towards cars in vancouver even though you know, about 50% is being used by other modes. So it's by far the least efficient mode of transit, even though it takes up way more space. Prescott, you covered this interesting topic of China making this shadow progress that wasn't predicted in actually growing its share of battery chemistries that matter going forward. Do you want to to say more about that? Yeah, so I think a lot of people in our industry are aware that the Chinese are the leaders basically today in making lithium-ion batteries. But there have been all these projects, all these gigafactories announced in across Europe, across the United States, frequently as JVs between American or European car makers, along with uh, Korean or Japanese battery technology companies. And so there was this view that, okay, the US and Europe are finally catching up. But the last two years, despite all this investment, there's been an interesting kind of unexpected twist that has, I wouldn't say set the US and Europe back, so to speak, but has definitely made China's lead more potentially solid. I think people are familiar with companies like LG and Samsung that make battery cells and Panasonic, which has been the long-term partner of Tesla and also maybe CATL, which is the big Chinese player. But I don't think people necessarily understand what their underlying technologies are like and what differentiates them. So I try to do as simple a job as possible in, in explaining there's two big areas in current technologies. And I don't get into the future kind of 
big bets on radical changes. Just today's technologies are either iron batteries or nickel batteries. And iron batteries or LFP are, funny enough, both were developed originally in the U.S. and with U.S. research. But, you know, originally the Japanese and Koreans ran away with the commercialization of originally the iron battery. And then later as the nickel battery came out from U.S. research, the Koreans and the Japanese also ran away with that. But in recent years, the last decade or so, China has come up building both of these. And China has really focused quite a bit on iron batteries, which as an older design, older chemistry, have lower energy density. So for the most part, all of the major vehicle announcements in the US and Europe, starting with the Chevy Volt back in 2009, have been using the newer battery chemistry or the nickel battery. And the Chinese do supply nickel batteries. CATL, which is now the second biggest company in China and the biggest single supplier of batteries for electric cars globally, they have to make both LFP or the iron batteries for their home markets and NMC or nickel batteries for international markets. But the Chinese definitely have continued to perfect the older chemistry, despite the fact that it's a lower energy density, while Americans and Europeans have really focused on trying to advance these nickel batteries. So if the LFP chemistry has is the older generation technology, why does it still have a chance? I can see why you can maybe make it cheaper, but how can it compete versus next generation technologies? Great question. And that's really the center of this whole debate. So iron or LFP has a lower energy density theoretically on a cell level, but cells, which are these small things either as sheets or as cylindrical cells or as prismatic cells, have to be packed together into a pack that's really what gets put into a car. And so even though the iron batteries have a lower density on a cell level, there's all these sorts of new packaging techniques people use to put the cells closer together that you can more easily do with iron batteries, and the Chinese have really advanced this, than you can with nickel batteries, because the older, more basic chemistry of iron batteries is way more stable. So you can pack the cells closer together, they're there's much less of a risk of runaway thermal events or fires, essentially. And ultimately, they're quite a bit cheaper. So I think on average last year, iron batteries were like 30% cheaper. And so when you actually then go to how that gets implemented in a vehicle, it might be a little bit less than 30% cheaper, but that's still quite significant because batteries are the single biggest source of cost for EVs. And that's why the Chinese were so focused on iron batteries. The Chinese domestic market is quite conscious about cost. And a lot of consumers in China who've never had a car before didn't come thinking, I need a car that can drive 400 miles and refuel in no time at all. They're new car buyers who don't have to subscribe to their old assumptions and stereotypes about cars. They can just say, hey, what do I need? Yeah, 80, 90 miles of range is actually totally fine for what I need. So that's why the Chinese have really doubled down on iron. We don't necessarily expect cars to have 2,000 miles of range. And as you increase the the range beyond a certain point, it, it doesn't really help that much, whereas cost starts becoming way more important, especially as electric vehicles go more mainstream. So how's this playing out in terms of like actual market adoption? So the upset victory for the Chinese here is that in the last two years, a lot of car makers in the West have started to actually shift to iron batteries or shift back to iron batteries, the the chemistry they gave up 15 years ago. 
because the Chinese have been able to make packs that are actually long enough range and cheap enough for that combination to start making sense. So Renault announced that its cheap cars last year would have LFP. Tesla went from zero LFP to like half of all Tesla vehicles being shipped today are with LFP batteries within, I think, a year. So that was a pretty radical shift. Ford is talking about LFPs to make the lower end versions of their cars. VW is going to make a low cost car with LFP. And ultimately, it's just about are consumers willing to spend $70,000 on a car? I think it was 60 or 65K is the average cost of an EV these days. It just doesn't make any sense. You have to start building to cost. So LFPs are making a complete resurgence. It's gone from 1% of the battery market back in January of 2020 to it's now well over 20% today. So it's a huge growth. So is Europe and America basically screwed? First of all, what is screwed, right? If LFP technologies become popularized, if these new vehicles get launched and they're cheaper, like if what we really want is EV adoption, I think it's great that iron batteries are making a comeback and that people are starting to design cars that are less expensive. But in terms of self-sufficiency, so to speak, it's a big problem because all of the investment, all of the battery companies and projects and factories that you're seeing being launched in the US and Europe over the last few years, they've all been focused on nickel chemistries and MC batteries. And it's only just, I think in the last few weeks or months, that the first company is thinking of doing an iron battery factory in the US. Funny enough, it's a Chinese company. Um, Yeah, it's a big problem for self-sufficiency. But I think it's also a wake-up call that you can't put all your bets on one chemistry and you do have to evaluate things that are beyond what's just in front of you. There's another interesting thing here happening where, and I don't talk about this too much in the piece, but a lot of the breakthrough technologies, those are being invested heavily by American and European companies. And that could totally be another upset coming down two, three years down the pipe where both NMC as it exists today and LFP as it exists today, like both of them lose out to these breakthrough things that are largely being pioneered by Americans and Europeans. So that's another bright spot. But just looking at what's happening between iron and nickel, it doesn't look great for American or European companies. You can read the full newsletter at news.red.blue. That's news.red.blue. See all this content and more. Thanks for listening. Until next time.